Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 64, The End and the Beginning. Last time, General Zhukov of the Soviet First Army Group reported to Moscow that the area between the Halha and the village of Nomaham was cleared of enemy troops at the end of August 1939. But when word of this got back to the Kwangtung headquarters, the leaders there immediately desired to launch a fresh attack to avenge this latest defeat. Because that's all it was, a tactical defeat, a setback. How could the men of the Kwangtung really ever be beaten? Yet the impossible had happened. What's more, the political landscape had changed drastically back home during those last few days of August of 1939. Even if the pro-war elements in Tokyo had desired to wage an all-out war against the hated Russians, they would be doing so alone. On August 23rd, Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia had signed a non-aggression pact. There was now no possible war against the Russians from the West, and Japan was still bogged down in its war with China. These factors were the dominant reason why the government of Premier Hiranuma resigned on August 28th. But gone were the days when the Army General Staff could assume that the Kwangtung leadership saw the obvious realities that precluded another attack across the Halha. So, to make sure there would be no fresh military adventure, the Army General Staff sent General Nakajima, the Deputy Chief of Army General Staff, to Helsinki with Imperial Order 343, commanding the Kwangtung to back down and pare down its strength in the conflicted area. Yet Nakajima was met with such shock and hope for a final victory that he allowed himself to be swayed by the euphoria in the room. The representative of the Army Group staff gave his verbal approval for the assault to begin on September 10th. Yet when Nakajima returned to Tokyo with the good news, he was the one who had to be talked out of the clouds. After a severe dressing down, he was sent, yes, back to a sinking with a second, even more direct imperial order. The Kwantung army would stand down. Now, the officers that Nakajima had seen just a few days ago pleaded with him to overturn this or to come up with a way around it. But Nakajima, regrettably, had nothing to offer. Then, a Kwangtung staff member suggested, why don't they tell those back in Tokyo that they were only going back to collect bodies and equipment? But this time, the Army General Staff Representative stood his ground, saying no to every idea. He ended with, it is an imperial order. It must be obeyed. Yet, one has to wonder, why he didn't realize this when he had brought over the first imperial order. In response, the Kwangtung commander, General Ieda, didn't waste any time. Going over Nakajima's head, he pleaded his case to the chief of the general staff, Prince Kanin. Yet perhaps plea is the wrong word. Prince Kanin was told to let the Kwangtung go back to Nomaham, or he would resign knowing this would cause shockwaves, something military brass and politicians hate. 
but this threat dovetailed nicely with what was about to happen to the Kuangtung leadership. On September 6th, Kanan replied that not only would the imperial order not be ignored by anyone, but the Kuangtung was to submit reports before any action was taken near Nomaham. And though it was his own condition, it wasn't enough to satisfy Kanin. Past events had shown Tokyo what Uyeda and his officers were capable of. So the next day, Ueda was relieved of his command. And now that the head had been removed, the body was defenseless to resist the upper echelon being broken apart. Scattered to other commands were Generals Ueda and Yano, Colonels Terada and Hatori, Major Tsuji and others. These were the men who, again and again, wanted to avenge the latest defeat handed to them by the Russians. But some of these men would be back together one day, and their attitudes towards war and glory would not have dissipated. They would just be redirected, much to the detriment of their country. With that handled, it was time for Japan to mend fences with the Russians. Ambassador Togo was told to agree to almost anything to conclude a peace. Soviet Foreign Minister Molotov played his usual game of aloofness, but then came around. Then all was done with alacrity. But by then, everyone was only concerned about Germany's invasion of Poland. On September 15th, an agreement was reached between Soviet Russia and Japan. Where the troops were would be the temporary line, and that was fine with Tokyo, but not the leaderless Kuangtung. So, just for the look of it, and to contain the Kuangtung soldiers, a ceasefire was agreed to for 2 a.m. September 16th, Moscow time. Representatives were sent out, bodies and prisoners were exchanged. The new Kuangtung leaders and the Russian officers in the area were polite and even deferential to each other. Yet, if the second-level Kuangtung leaders could not fight the Russians, they could vent their spleen against their own men, and that's what they began to do. One colonel of the artillery, whose regiment was forced to retire because their guns were captured, as most were, he, Colonel Sakai, who commanded the 72nd Infantry Regiment, committed suicide. But he had been pressured to before his court-martial could begin. He had retreated without permission. Again, many had. The same fate fell upon several Japanese pilots who were shot down, managed to live, but allowed themselves to be captured. They were hounded until they, too, took their own lives to make up for their mistakes. But probably saddest of all was the case of Lieutenant Colonel Aoki, who had commanded the force on the Fui Heights and had lasted for three days without hope or help from his superiors. It will be remembered that of his 800 men, some 200 had survived and made their way east, as did many officers that outranked Aoki. While he, Aoki, was in the hospital recovering from his injuries, the lieutenant colonel was ordered to kill himself, which would, somehow, uphold the dignity of the army. But Aoki was as brave now as he had been on Fui Heights. He told his superiors that, 
given the circumstances, he was lucky that as many of his men lived as it was. But the officers pushed and badgered the man, who eventually gave in. Meanwhile, on the Soviet side, things were quite different. The purges had been horrible, but were over. And if anything, the victory at Nomahom proved Stalin's tough actions had been needed and correct, at least to his point of view. Medals and citations were handed out, almost willy-nilly. The heroes of Kalingo, as the Soviets referred to it, were given the Order of Lenin and or the Hero of the Soviet Union. Then came more decorations from the Mongol government and military. As for Zhukov, he was brought to Moscow in May of 1940 and received, along with four other men, the re-established rank of General of the Army. Then, after a one-on-one with Stalin, Zhukov was given the command of the Kiev Special Military District. Now that the story of the Battle of Nomahom has been laid out, it's interesting to put it back into the overall story of World War II. When fighting first started near Nomahom in May of 1939, Soviet Russia and Nazi Germany were circling each other politically, diplomatically. Both sides wanted something specific, but did not want to give up anything. Now that Russia was in its second serious border dispute with Japan, Stalin wanted to keep his options open with a possible understanding with Germany. So if things did get out of control with Japan, Russia would not have to worry about its western border. Hitler wanted talks with Moscow, even if they didn't go anywhere, just to make sure there would be no London-Paris-Moscow alliance against Germany. But then, as the Japanese kept coming at the Soviets near the Haha, Russia showed itself more willing to reach some sort of agreement. By removing the current foreign commissar, Maxim Lintvinov, a Jew married to an Englishwoman, who was then replaced by Molotov, a close lieutenant of Stalin's. Berlin replied to this positive step by having all German press stop dragging Bolshevism through the mud. Moscow replied to this by sending out signals that perhaps commercial treaties could be worked out. Berlin jumped at this, which is what Moscow wanted. Because then Molotov said, whoa, before anything, there has to be a political understanding between the two countries. Into this mix was the attempt to have an alliance between Germany, Italy, and Japan. But that wasn't going very far, because Germany wanted the alliance pointed at Britain and France, whereas Tokyo wanted it aimed at their traditional enemy, the USSR. But Hitler was on a timetable. He knew he had gotten as much territory as he was going to get without a fight. And as Poland was next on his list, he needed it isolated, Russia disinterested, and the Allies held back. The best he could do for now was to link up with Italy, creating the Pact of Steel on May 22, 1939. This pact, which did not contain Japan, was most assuredly noticed in Moscow. Molotov, using intermediaries, sent word to Berlin that of Soviet Russia's current options, to seriously treat with the Allies 
or to just string out the talks with them, or working something out with Germany. The last option appealed to Stalin the most. Hitler reacted strongly to this by having word put out that, of course, Molotov was right. There had to be a political understanding as a basis for any economic agreement. But this was easier said than done for Stalin. He was openly talking to the Allies, but without faith. As in, he, Stalin, had no faith in Britain and France. Chamberlain could not hide his inability to believe anything worthy could come from Russia, from the communists. It was equally obvious that the British were just talking to Russia to keep Germany boxed in with a possible alliance. But for Stalin, what did the word of the Allies mean? It certainly hadn't helped Czechoslovakia. Would Soviet Russia be left holding the bag if Britain and France made certain threats or promises, only to then back off before the shooting, leaving Russia thus exposed? But now word was coming from Berlin, quietly of course, that perhaps something could be worked out. Yet London got word of this, but Chamberlain and those in the cabinet could not bring themselves to think there would ever be an agreement between the two dictators. Again, British prejudice against communism found that country wanting, trust-wise and militarily. And surely it wasn't possible that Germany really desired an agreement with Stalin. But as these weeks went by in 1939, Stalin found himself being taken more seriously by the Germans. Moscow raised questions, tough, specific questions, about various countries' reactions to any future conflict with Japan or the protection of the Baltic states in a European war, and only Germany was quickly answering those questions. Stalin was learning where he stood with Berlin and that he was respected far more than with the other potential allies. They took weeks to reply to a single question, and the answer was not forthright, never forthright. Yet the British and French had been playing this game for a long time. They agreed in general with enough of Stalin's questions to be allowed to send representatives to Moscow. The two men came, slowly, by boat and then train, and arrived on August 11th. But even here, the Allies were insincere. The British diplomat could only talk and form a general agreement. He certainly couldn't sign anything. His French counterpart would work out an agreement to the letter, but again, he did not have the authority to sign anything. But as August went by, the Germans pressed hard for more detailed talks. After all, Hitler was on a deadline. But what's more, they were also giving concessions almost as fast as Stalin could ask for them. Yet he, Stalin, did not let the Allied representatives in on any of this. The man kept his options open. And in those moments where there seemed to be any real progress about to be made with the Allies, Stalin would sabotage the talks by demanding that if war came between them and Germany, Poland would have to allow Soviet troops into their territory and it would be the job of Britain and France to make them agree. This Poland would never do, so the talks would be stalled again. 
Overall, Stalin would rather have an understanding with Germany. It was the real threat, and if an agreement could be met, one, he would certainly be buying himself more time before he was attacked, and he knew he would be. And two, guessing that giving Hitler a free hand would create moments of opportunity for Soviet Russia. Throughout the first week of August, the Soviets and Germans talked through intermediaries. But by August 11th, Stalin was ready to inform the Politburo that it was time to formally negotiate with Germany. Along the lines, set down by Moscow and approved by Berlin. So, as the motions were went through with the Allies, Moscow and Berlin got down to brass tacks. The deal, when it was done, was more than a non-aggression pact, more than secret clauses. It was a military alliance. First, it gave Stalin, in whatever form it would end up being, a free hand in the east at Nomaham. Poland would be invaded by both countries, and the victim divided between the two. The Baltic countries would go to Russia, with Lithuania going to Germany. Finland lay in the Soviet sphere. And finally, Russia would supply raw materials to Germany that Britain would be sure to blockade once war was underway. But why did Stalin choose Hitler? Yes, the Allies were vacillating. Their word was not something to bank on. But one reason, mostly overlooked in the West was Nomaham. If Stalin picked the Allies, Germany might attack in the near future, which would encourage the hotheads in Tokyo to do the same. But even if Stalin continued to play both sides, the Allies and Germany against each other, then there would be no formal understanding with the Nazis, which would mean Stalin would have to keep massive forces in the West and not send them east to beat back the war-hungry Kwangtung forces. And lastly, an agreement with Germany would destroy any hope in Tokyo of an anti-Soviet German-Japanese alliance. Obviously, there's no way to tell how much the series of clashes near Nomaham influenced Stalin, but it's logical that they did more than most acknowledge or admit. Getting back to the German-Soviet negotiations, On August 16th, the road seemed to be paved. Each side knew that an agreement was within reach. And that was good enough for Stalin. Two days later, Zhukov launched his attack across the Halha, having been given permission to do so. Three days after that, Stalin and Ribbentrop were toasting each other and their respective countries. On the night of August 23rd, Ribbentrop and Molotov were working out the details. Zhukov was soaking the ground east of Halha with Japanese blood, while the Allies were being asked for a small stoppage in their talks with Stalin. The game was about to be over for the Polish and the Kwangtung soldiers. But, though not covered in minute detail here, there were still small clashes between Kwangtung forces and the soldiers of Zhukov even after the 7th Division had retreated. So Stalin could not yet be sure of the situation there, that it was truly resolved. So, although it was a part of the secret pact, the Soviet troops did not invade Poland from the east, 
Not yet. Only after the Molotov-Togo agreement was reached on September 16th did Stalin release his troops on the western border with Poland. The next day, September 17th, Soviet Russia attacked a prostrate Poland. And at that moment, Stalin had won. Britain and France did not get what they wanted, an alliance to frighten Hitler into staying out of Germany, and Japan, an alliance with Germany to crush Russia between the two. Yet this Soviet political victory soon gave way to a string of German military victories. Ironically, Soviet-Japanese relations improved significantly and quickly after Nomaham. The border was formally recognized by the Soviet version on June 14, 1941. They had won, after all. But soon there was an economic agreement and a release of so much tension between Moscow and Tokyo. And one year after the end of the fighting at Nomaham, Tokyo did join with Berlin and Rome in the Rome-Berlin-Tokyo access. Yet it wasn't aimed at Soviet Russia. Then, almost a year later, April 1941, Japan and Soviet Russia signed their own neutrality pact. This was nine weeks before Germany invaded Russia. But why wasn't the Russian military given the respect it had clearly earned during the Nomaham incident? Because Stalin played down the fighting. It was, after all, in the middle of his negotiations with the Western powers. The fact that it ended in victory didn't matter. If a potential enemy knows you are in the middle of a fight, he may strike as your military focus is somewhere else. In this case, very far away. That's the second reason Nomohom wasn't on everyone's lips. The last reason, simply, was the pathetic, slogging Soviet victory achieved over Finland. That embarrassing adventure overshadowed the crushing victory in the East. But what about Japan? Why didn't it walk away with the correct lessons from Nomohom? Because it didn't want to. That's a simplified version of the answer, of course, but it holds true. Otherwise, how do you explain losing a war to a country with a larger industrial base and then choose to fight another country with literally the largest industrial base on the planet? Japanese governments rose and fell after Nomaham, but the military was still obsessed with ending the war with China, to their advantage, of course, but which Chiang Kai-shek would not let happen. But then Germany started overrunning country after country, and the feeling of the Japanese military soon became that they were missing the bus. That's literally what posters said, plastered on various public buildings. It was a time for the strong to take from the weak. Yet clearly, for Japan, going west, further into Asia, was not the answer. China wasn't giving up any time soon. As for Russia, well, that was not to be dealt with again. That left heading south, towards the resource-rich colonies of Britain, France, and the Dutch. But when the Japanese occupied southern Indochina, the U.S. froze Japanese assets in the United States and stopped all oil and gasoline exports. Britain copied the U.S. As 80% of Japan's oil imports came from the United States, the country's oil 
would be used up within a year. That's what Roosevelt wanted, to stop the aggressors. But Japan took this as a challenge. And there was oil nearby. It just wasn't theirs. In modern-day Indonesia lay the area's largest oil producer. And the Netherlands, its current owners, had already been conquered by Germany. So what was to stop them, the Japanese? The Germans had portrayed the Japanese by choosing Stalin. It was time for some payback. But yet, there was the United States, or rather, the U.S. Navy, stationed in Hawaii. That would have to be removed before the oil could be brought under Japanese control. And tucked in the middle of all this was Nomahom. Why didn't Japan attack the USSR when it seemed to all asunder that Soviet Russia was about to be the next victim of Hitlerism? Honestly, the military was tempted. Resources and revenge. It was intoxicating. However, the painful lessons of those clashes and losses around the Halha River stayed with those men in uniform for a very long time. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, as you probably noticed, this did not come out in September. Sorry about that. Things got away from me. And this is only one episode, not two. So here's what I'm going to do. I am going to um, do the next three membership episodes back-to-back right away, so you'll get those. And um, I'm thinking I'm just going to go back to the Krupp family uh, from here, now that we've ended with Nomahom. The Krupp family becomes so rich and so powerful and so intertwined with the various German governments that at one point in the early 1930s, late 1920s, I think it's Gustav Krupp, who's head of the family at the time, along with some other industrialists, literally, quote-unquote, hire Hitler. They are going to economically support the Nazi party, get them elected, and then have the Nazis look after their interests. Um, This is nothing new in politics. Um, Men who are very rich uh, support governments that look after them and make them even richer. Of course, what are you supposed to do with another couple hundred million dollars when you've already got that is a question I can't answer. But uh, what the industrialists don't know is that Hitler has his own specific plans and he will be beholden to no one once he gets into to power and he has, a, he has a specific plan on how to make that happen. So this, it's an exciting story. This family literally becomes so intertwined and without going into too much detail now, when you have a family that is so rich and so powerful that the children of that family don't have to work. They can just do whatever. Um, It has a tendency to bring out some of the darker sides of human nature when they don't have to work for a living. They can just do whatever. And so even though um, the who we're talking about now, Alfred um, Krupp, who is kind of crazy, kind of kooky. He keeps his, you know, his bedroom over the um, the horse's stable because he likes the smell of manure. That's nothing compared to what some of the latter generations of the Krupps do. So the family goes on, they get even more powerful, more rich, and they sell to a lot more countries, which is a very complicated thing when you're dealing with armaments and potential war all over the place. But uh, it's a very, uh, it's a very exciting story, and we're going to kind of speed up the story a little bit and get to, um, you know, the post-World War I German Republic era to see how the Krupps really get involved with uh, with the Nazi party. And those will be the next three episodes um, that I put out much sooner than later. So again, I'm sorry that September got away from me. Um, <laughs> thank you for your patience.